Hi everyone. Hi. We're Laura and Naria. Welcome to our podcast, Thoughts from Limbo. It's founded on the realization that that's all that life is, a giant state of limbo. One where we never have perfect information and there are no linear paths. All we can do is our best to navigate this big, beautiful mess. So come ride with us. We bring you insights from successful entrepreneurs, creatives, and experts. People from different walks of life who can provide some of the answers to life's many questions and have a powerful story to share. They're all here to empower you, feed your curiosity, and help you navigate life. A life in limbo. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is particularly great for anyone looking for career progression, which presumably is the majority of you. Whether you're just starting out or you've got some experience under your belt, today's guest gives us a lot of helpful career tips and explains the often underrated importance of soft skills. We spoke with the multi-talented Mark Hirschberg, who turned out to have an abundantly cool background. He received multiple degrees from MIT, including a bachelor's in physics, another bachelor's and a master's in electrical engineering and computer science, before moving on to tracking criminals and terrorists on the internet and developing several new ventures in startups and Fortune 500s. He's also done work for Harvard Business School, he started MIT's very own Career Success Accelerator program, and he's the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And it's exactly the insights contained in his book that we delve into throughout our episode. Mark explains why, when it comes to developing and strengthening your soft skills, it really is a case of sooner rather than later. We talk about robots taking over our jobs, harnessing teamwork in an increasingly competitive world, the future of working from home, career planning, networking, and the wide range of skills that we all need to focus on to build our desired careers. So we hope that you'll enjoy this episode as much as we did. Mark was such a beacon of knowledge, and now I'll let you find that out for yourselves. Here's Mark Hirschberg. Hi, Mark. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for joining us. I was actually really excited because I've read in an article written in Forbes that you're an MIT trained engineer who tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web and spent a career developing and launching new startups, which sounds fascinating. Um, Could you give us a little bit of info about your background? I did come out of MIT. I've got three degrees from MIT and I began my career as a software developer during the dot-com era. I've been a CTO for a number of years, and I've built tech startup companies ranging from ad tech and media to cybersecurity, including intelligence gathering on the dark web, creating new software languages, creating a labor marketplace, a video marketplace. I've helped Fortune 500s play startup. I helped Harvard Business School launch a new type of educational program. And then, of course, I helped MIT create what's known as the Career Success Accelerator, where I've been teaching for the past 20 years, teaching these career skills to MIT undergrads and to others elsewhere. Wow, I think you might be the coolest person we've had on so far. (laughs) God, that sounds fascinating. At what point in your career was it that you suddenly realized, because it's also, it's fascinating because it's got a very techie career. Um, At what point did you 
realize that there's all these soft skills that are kind of underrated or underdeveloped in a lot of people. It was early in my career, but later than I'd like. I definitely stumbled along the way the first couple years. And when I realized I wanted to become a CTO, I thought about what do I need to do? How will I qualify? And it wasn't just about being a really good software developer. In fact, I'm a worse software developer today than when I spent all my time writing code. I had to develop these other skills, leading, hiring people, planning budgets, communicating with others, team building. And these were things that I was never taught in school. I began to explore these skills and develop them in myself. And interestingly, when I was hiring other people, I realized, well, these are skills I want to see in other people. I would ask someone a technical question. Now, it might be about accounting or marketing or software, whatever their field was, and they could answer it. But if I ask questions about these topics, about what makes someone a good leader, how do you think about team building, I would get blank stares because, of course, they weren't taught these skills either. And that's when I realized this was a widespread problem. It wasn't just, well, I missed it because I forgot to mention it in my physics and computer science classes. They don't teach this to anybody. And that's something we have to address. Why do you think the soft skills have never formed part of the actual curriculum in both schools and university? Why are they not actually ingrained in the curriculum? When you look at primary and secondary education, at least in the U.S., I can't speak as well for for Europe. It's a relatively new invention. The idea of sending our students to school only goes back 100, 150 years. Before that, we were farmers and you just learned from your parents. You didn't have to read or write or do much arithmetic. So you just picked up the skills you needed. Once we moved to an industrialized society, that schooling, primary and secondary school, was designed to make you capable to exist in society and train you up for industrial work. So you had to read and write. You had to do basic math. We taught you some basic social studies and how to be a good citizen. And that was fine. When you got to the 1950s, right, when college started to become common and now more people were going to university, people picked up their professional skill sets. Now, universities, they date back about eight, 900 years. They're organized by professors. Of course, professors are wonderful people, but they have some limit limitations. In particular, professors, if you think about university, when you study marketing, what happens is professors in marketing say, well, take all these classes. You have to take these core classes, these advanced classes, and pick some optional classes. If you do all this, we as the experts in the field, the gatekeepers, will now endow you with a degree, say a bachelor's in marketing. Mm -hmm. All that is saying is we have now said you have acquired a certain level of marketing knowledge. That's it. They're not saying you're a good marketer. They're not saying you're a good employee or teammate or leader or anything else. They're just saying, we have said, yep, you passed these tests and have proven this knowledge of marketing. And that was fine mid-century when as a marketer or accountant or engineer in these hierarchical corporations, your boss would say, do this. And you say, yes, sir. Okay. You need it by Friday? Certainly, sir. Here you go, sir. Done by Friday. What next, sir? Right. And we just did our little tiny piece where we were focused on a particular technical task. Again, technical being a general disciplinary skill. It's only in the last 30 or 40 years as those hierarchies flattened, as we got cross-functional teams, as we became a lot more dynamic and responsive, that we've had to employ different sets of skills in communication, in team building, in organization and leadership. 
And unfortunately, our university system has not yet responded to that. I unfortunately don't think they will for another 30 or 40 years, but we're starting to see a little bit of progress. It's just going to take some time. Yeah. I mean, I'm a primary school teacher, so we don't teach any of that in primary school. I mean, I do teach third grade. They are eight years old. I mean, I'm not going to give them career advice now, but we do work on, for example, team building skills, group skills, working together. It depends on the teacher though. That's the thing. It's not in the curriculum. And for example, I love, you know, them working in teams and group work. But for example, for children, the group work means, oh, I'll just find a friend. And I actually tried this this week because I knew we were going to talk to you. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm going to guide them a bit in their choice. I'm going to say, so choose a partner that you think will bring the best out of you, will make your work better and will really play with your strength and your weakness. Think of what you can give them and what they can give you. Every single one chose a different person. That is fantastic. I would encourage you when when you do that. I think that's a great lesson. And certainly we're seeing some teachers are starting to add in empathy and some of these other skills that really are foundational to what we're talking about. If you do that again, give it a try and then have the students write down or share what was it that they thought they could offer and what was it they were looking for so they could learn from each other and get inspired for other things. Because I know myself as an eight-year-old, I had a very narrow view of the world. (laughs) And I wouldn't have thought of things unless someone else had happened to mention it. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm going to try that. I'll try that out this week. I think I, I want to hear how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely one of the kids, I think, that would have just stuck to my friends. I would have just said, don't, don't say anything, don't say anything. I mean, <laughs> it did you... take them a while. It's difficult. No, but it's. I think it's such an important thing that, um, that they begin to do. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Right. But it was difficult because they suddenly had to learn something new and explore in a new way. And that is, that is fantastic. Yeah. And do you think as more and more of these jobs become kind of taken over by robots, more of the routine jobs, like for example, I worked briefly at Amazon. So I saw that now they're building more robotic centers. So the jobs that were done by people, obviously taking parcels, putting them in different places are now done by robots. So do you think even like now, the soft skills are even more important. Absolutely. And let's remember, this is not a new trend. So in the United States, for example, we saw over a hundred year period, people went from, uh, society went from being 75% farmers to 25%. And the reason for that is because of increases in farming productivity that we didn't need to have three quarters of of our society all farming. And they went into industrial jobs in the cities. And today, farming is maybe 4% of our workforce. But we're seeing this not just for physical jobs. We all know farmers got automated. Toll booth collectors, they're all automated away. Mm -hmm. But we also see this even in our white collar jobs. So consider a lawyer. Lawyers spend lots and lots of hours poring over books and contracts. What do lawyers do? Well, they're searching for case law. They're trying to find relevant case law. And then they have to write up and draft a contract and check that the contract is correct. This takes a lot of time. We've been able to automate a lot of this. Now, some came from using Word docs instead of hand typing documents. But as we've gotten further, that research 
gets improved by better algorithms, by our search algorithms that says, oh, if you're looking at this case, here's other cases you should look at. Here's what I think would be most relevant. And now a lawyer, instead of having a search through 50 cases to find three relevant ones, might look through five. So we just reduce that time. Likewise, when they're writing a contract, the modern legal editing software can point out, this might be an incorrect clause, you might need to note this, and it saved them time. So what happens is a lot of the road tasks that even white collar workers do get automated away. That means for us to provide value, it's not just I've proofread this document for three hours. That's no longer how you're providing value. It's that higher order delivery, building relationships with your customers, thinking through strategy, coming up with new types of offerings and services all of this higher order thinking that comes from these professional skills I list in the book and related skills. Yeah, see, I, I can completely relate to that because I studied law at university and I have secured a training contract in a law firm in London, but it doesn't start for another year and a half from now. So I have paralegal experience and there is, especially in the law firm that I worked at, there was so many um, very... Uh, more so mundane tasks that were very transactional, very just sorting through information like you described, um, you know, spending hours and hours just finding the information before you even get to apply it. Um, and I think, you know, I some people I think fear this whole, um, you know, you hear a lot of, oh, robots and computers are taking over our jobs. And I'm like, I can't wait for them to take over the more mundane jobs <laughs> because frankly, like I, it, I think they really do just make our lives easier and allow us to focus on, as you mentioned, more the high level stuff and the, just the more interesting tasks. When you talk to people about that, if you talk to a warehouse worker, they are understandably concerned that a robot will take their job. If you ask the same person, how do you feel about bringing back toll booth workers so we all stand in line as we drive to work? How do you feel about getting rid of all those online booking websites and now you have to call a travel agent or call the phone and wait online to get a concert ticket? They'll say, no, that was terrible. We're so much better off now that we've automated these things, but in automating them, what have we done? We've gotten rid of lots of jobs. So we all like automation until it comes for our job. But if you understand your profession, if you understand where it's going, the changes that you're facing, and most importantly, how you deliver value and how you can deliver value in the future, you can stay ahead of this robot nipping at your heels who's going to take away a lot of these road tasks, and you can focus on the higher order value to make sure that you continue to have a job and continue to grow in your career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I actually, there was one particular soft skill that I have a particular question on. And it was what we talked about before, which is teamwork. And so, I mean, to an, to an extent, there's always been an element in of competition. But I, I'm just thinking of, you know, traditionally, people might have worked in the same company in the same you know, type of or department or role for their whole lives. Maybe they worked in that company for like 30 years or maybe even 40 years. And so there was already, it was easier maybe to connect with the people that you worked with because that was your team for life in a sense. 
And now that people are increasingly moving from company to company, from one role to another, and they might not have that same level of commitment to the team, existing team that they're in, because they they might say, you know, I'm here for three years, there might not be that same sense of purpose. And coupled with the fact that things are ever more competitive and people are competing left, right and centre, and you might not want to help out a colleague too much because they might get the promotion over you. How do you achieve strong teamwork? Good question. There's two aspects that you brought up. So the first has to do with the stability of our teams. Now, it turns out people aren't leaving jobs any faster than they used to. The concept of people working in the same job for 30, 40 years, it's actually a little bit of a myth. When you look at the employment data, which I've seen in the US, again, I can't speak to other countries, it turns out it still was about four or five years per job tenure, even when you go back to mid-century, back in the 20th century. So it hasn't changed that much. Now, this is actually a good thing because when we change the companies we work at, when we change our coworkers, it gives us an opportunity to learn new things. One of the most important things I look for when I take a job is how am I going to learn? Now, some of that might be they're going to send me to formal training. They'll send me to some executive training or teach me some new technique. But it's also what you get from your peers. Are your peers going to be able to teach you things, whether it's domain skills or personal skills? I remember my first boss, he was so good at the whiteboard. And I watched what is it that he did? And I realized he would consciously pick up different colored pens. Most people at the whiteboard, they pick one pen and they draw everything in that pen. But he would think about current state in one color, new state in a different color, putting options in yet a different color. And so I watched and learned, and I became much better at using the whiteboard, about using the layout and using colors. So little things like that or more formal skills, we can all pick up from our coworkers. And the more we change the more we're going to learn. Obviously, we don't want to change every three or six months, but I think it's helpful that that happens. Your second point was to competition. And sure, if there's an opening at the company and you and I are both eligible for it, we're going to be in competition. But the fact that we move around so much means there's a whole bunch of other jobs in our metro area, now maybe even larger as remote work becomes more common, And so, yeah, we're in competition, but really there's a bunch of other people in competition as well. And we probably will be better off working together. If you look at just the history of life, life went from single cell organisms that would compete for food and safety to merging together and becoming multi-cell organisms to becoming plants and animals to animals that said we should be in packs because we together as a pack or some other group, safety in numbers, to even human civilization, where we went from small tribes to now larger global communities, the more we interact, the more we trust each other and partner, the greater our achievements. Now, if we look at this from a negotiation standpoint, good negotiators know, I don't look at you as you're the opposition. Yes, I want to do as well as I can, and some of that might come at your expense. But if I just think about how do I grab as much as I can for me and not worry at all about you, I'm probably going to find a substandard solution than if I think not just about grabbing the biggest piece of the pie, but how to enlarge the pie. 
So I see you as my partner in negotiations. How can we enlarge that pie? And then I'm going to grab as big a slice as possible. But even if I grab a huge slice, the pie might be so big that you're happy with the slice that you got. It's bigger than what you were going to start with. So we can look at our cooperation and competition within our coworkers the same way. Generally working together and supporting each other is going to create more for everyone. And then we can worry about in the end, yes, one of us has to step up and get the job. Certainly be careful if someone just keeps taking, 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 and they're not giving back. Be wary of that. But I think most of us, if we have that culture of help your coworkers work together, even if at slight times we might be in competition, we're overall going to do much better. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I com- I completely agree. It's taken me back to my, I remember in law school, all these negotiation tasks that we had to do. <laughs> I wish I would have learned this a little sooner. <laughs> You're lucky you got that. I know many lawyers who had zero negotiation training. Oh, wow. And another thing that I was curious about, um, when you mentioned, well, when we spoke about, um, you know, career changes, do you have any helpful tips when it comes to career planning and goal setting? Absolutely. This is something so many people don't know how to do or don't want to do or don't think they can do. The common pushback is, well, you can't plan for your career. It's so long. So many things can happen. Now, if we think about any project at work, if your boss ever says, I want you to do this, it's due in six months, go deliver this project. Would you ever say to her, okay, great. So I'll see you in six months. Not going to bother with a project plan or budget, won't do any check-ins. I'll just call you in six months and hopefully we're there. Your boss would never accept that, right? She says, no, no, create a plan, right? Let's see how you're doing. I want check-ins. And you do the plan, not because you know you're going to stick to it completely. We know you're going to have things go wrong, but it's by having that plan that you can say, are we on plan? Are we off plan? If so, how much? What do we have to do to get back on plan or change things? Sometimes your boss comes in and says, listen, the CEO, he just changed his mind. So I know we were building towards this, but um, new goal. Okay, now we're going to update the plan. But we have something that we're conscious of. Now, our careers are much longer than six months. These are years or decades. So what do we do? We create a plan. Start from that goal. Where do you want to be in 10 or 20 years? To get there, where do you need to be in 10 years, in eight years, in four years, in two years? What are those steps along the way? To qualify for those jobs, what do you need to do? What skills do you need? What accomplishments do you need? And then how can you create a path to get there? Along the way, we know it's not going to happen just as you planned. So do check-ins. Am I on plan? Am I off plan? Oh, there's a global pandemic. So I guess that new job opportunity didn't come. I was supposed to do it this year, but canceled the project. Okay, now I have to figure out a different way to gain what I was going to achieve through that. Or maybe a job shows up out of the blue. A recruiter calls you. How do you know if this job is going to move you closer to your ultimate goal or not if you don't have a plan? So create this plan but revise and check in regularly. Yeah, that's another thing I wish I would have learned sooner because I tend to really overthink things. And so something that I feel set me back in my career, especially in my early, well, I'm still at the early career, but basically over the past five years is the fact that I, because I wasn't, probably because I hadn't created a longer term plan, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, 
whenever I'd start a new role, say, say I had been applying to that role for maybe three months and done all the, you know, assessment tests and rigorous process. And for three months, that job was all I wanted. And then I'd finally get there. And then within, you know, in the first three to four months, I'd start to question, oh God, but you know, what, there was this other thing. What if that other option would have been better? And I just immediately see all these opportunity costs because there are so many opportunities out there that I always wonder, oh, what if? And I guess it's just part of it is probably just a level of maturity and decisiveness, to be honest. But just in case there are any people like me who wonder or worry about being on the right track, what would your advice be? There's an expression, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so many of us suffer through that. I have also learned things are never as rosy as they appear. I've known couples that from the outside, they look like they have this wonderful relationship. And as I've gotten to know them better, I discover, yeah, it's not as pretty. Mm -hmm. These companies that seem great, these companies that seem like, oh, it's a rocket ship and everyone's doing well. Then you find out there's a toxic culture or it's smoke and mirrors and they're not doing as well as they thought. So don't worry about, oh, could that have been better? Once you've made your choice, focus on where you are and ask yourself on this path I am on here, am I getting what I wanted to out of the job? And of course, that's not just compensation. That's not just your salary, but it's also, are you learning the way you wanted to learn? Are you developing? Are you finding the opportunities and enjoyment that you wanted? If you're not, can you do something to get more out of this job? Can you talk to your manager or other people, get on certain projects, take on certain responsibilities? That will grow you as you want. Don't worry about, well, maybe if I had been at that job, I could have done this. Time and again, it's that great project you would have done at the other job. Well, that got canceled or changed along the way or became some death march you would have hated. So focus on where you are and maximize the opportunities in your current role to the best that you can. Yeah, that's so helpful. And to your point about also thinking longer term as well, I think that would have been really helpful for me because when I was in uh, university, I I think just so much studying and so much academics, I felt like I wanted to do something super hands-on, really businessy, really practical. I'd also be watching too much of The Apprentice, the UK version. And I just became convinced, I convinced myself that I had to work in sales at some point in my career. And then about six months in, I began to not really feel it or not think that it was something long-term for me. And in hindsight, you know, I, I learned so much in my role in sales that I didn't appreciate at the time. And if I would have been more grateful and sort of said, hey, I'm okay, this might not be long-term, but it doesn't have to be. So I don't have to suddenly dislike it. I can just appreciate what I am learning mm-hmm. and think about how I can apply this in the future. I think just mentally on an emotional level, that would have helped me out and... Yeah, we got some excellent training that I completely undervalued, I think, at the time. A lot of people don't take that long-term view and sometimes don't really recognize opportunities may come and go in the longer term. So when I was in my 20s, I was a software developer. I worked at lots of startups. Mm -hmm. And I had debated, should I have done consulting? Eh, Maybe. I was comfortable where I was. But for years, many of my friends 
and some former students were trying to get me to move to their consulting firms. So finally, in my 30s, I thought, all right, I'm going to give this a try. And I tried to apply to some midsize and large consulting firms. Didn't even get an interview. Now, this was surprising because all these firms came to MIT years ago when I was an undergrad. They said, oh, don't worry. We don't care what your major is. It's not about what you know. We're just looking for raw intelligence. So here I was 10 some years later. I'm still just as intelligent as I was. Now I'm even better. Right now I have some experience. I have some knowledge. What I didn't take into account was that from their perspective, I was a higher risk. Right, because they were looking at me and they were looking at one of my peers who graduated at the same time, but had spent 10 years at a consulting firm. That person has the right background, has the skills and experience, understands the culture, knows how to present in front of clients, knows how to think like a consultant. Maybe they could train me, maybe not. But from the hiring manager's perspective, she could hire either one of us. And okay, if we work, we work great. But if we don't work out, if that other person didn't work out, they'd say, oh, well, that was a surprise. That candidate did so well at other consulting companies. I guess just, you know, we missed it. But if she hired me and I didn't work out, her boss would say, what were you thinking? Mark had never consulted before. He doesn't have the background. Why did you do that? So the downside became much higher than the upside, and I was no longer a viable candidate. Many of us have these things happen. We all know that if you're going to go to law school or med school, you do it in your 20s, so you have years to pay off the loans. You don't do it at 57, right? I mean, you yeah. can if you really want to, but the optionality is very different. And while this consulting example isn't as direct as the money no longer objectively doesn't make sense, there are other factors that come in to change that optionality. And so we need to be proactive in thinking about where we want to go, what are the paths that open up opportunities towards that goal? And in doing so, what other opportunities might we be closing off? Because early on, you probably want to keep as many options open as possible while you're still exploring. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's actually why I think another soft skill, networking, is so important. Because, you know, the, the more... The more years since you graduated, as you mentioned, you might appear on paper to be a higher risk to a company. But if that hiring manager, for example, knows you, you know, they might say, okay, so on paper, I wouldn't have necessarily hired this person, but oh, I know Mark and I know he can present in front of clients. I've seen him do this. I've seen him do that. Or, you know, if, if you know something about them because they're in your network, I think that that also speaks to the fact that this other soft skill, networking and communicating with other people outside of your company too can open opportunities. That's exactly right. What networking does, networking is a chain of trust, right? It's when you know someone who knows someone, you are vouching for this person, this customer, this product or service. You're saying, I endorse this. And that's sending information. In fact, when you think about hiring, it's really kind of silly. We interview someone for maybe a total of three hours, mm -hmm. and then we're going to offer this person a job, right? They might come in three rounds, an hour each. Some companies, okay, you're looking at five or six hours. And then you're saying, particularly for a senior role, mm -hmm. okay, great. We're going to entrust this person with multiple millions of dollars in a budget with all these employees, with our customers, and we're doing on very limited information. 
if you can go through your network, if you can get someone who you've known for a while to say, yes, I know him, he's a great candidate, he's reliable, he's smart, he's responsible, you get so much more information. And this is why we do references, ideally back channel references, not because yeah. we're all, we're all going to give references to people who like us. But if you can go through your network, that helps. It opens up doors. I'll give another example. I had a student of mine. He was a sophomore. And when I was teaching the class, uh, we were actually doing a wrap up post their summer internship. So he just came back from spending his summer working for a company. And he heard about the types of work that I did, which back then I was doing general business consulting. And he said, boy, we could have used someone like you at my company. I said, really? Tell me a little more. And I asked him, I said, would you be comfortable introducing me to the company founders? Now, he didn't know me that well, but he had some trust because MIT said, Mark is a smart guy and qualified to teach this class. So he said, okay, I trust MIT doesn't just put any bozo up in front of us. So I trust Mark is competent. And then he went to his boss, the founder, and said, here's this guy. I think he's probably someone who can help us. Can you meet with him? So it's just enough trust to say, invest an hour of your time meeting with Mark. Not you have to hire him, not give him the keys to the kingdom, meet with him. But that was sufficient. So I then met with the two founders. They said, really interesting. Here are our problems. We talked about it. I said, yeah, here's how I can help you. And I got a six-month contract. So this was a sophomore in college who got me a six-month consulting job. And it's because we had that chain of trust. All of us need to create extensive networks and don't just think about, oh, you're not qualified enough. You're not senior enough. Everyone has some value to add. Everyone knows something that you don't know. And they also have their entire extended network. So even if you are a student, even if you are a young person, know you bring a lot of value to your network and people should want to get to know you and you should want to get to know lots of other people. 100%. Do you think... The now, obviously, because of the pandemic and everything, do you think the work from home era is here to stay? Like, do you think that we're going to see a shift in the skills that are most important, both for efficiency and to stand out? I think the we're now in a totally remote workforce is a bit overblown. We've certainly had remote workforces before. I was actually at some remote companies prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, we have shifted the conversation from, oh, can remote work? I don't know. Will this really work for our company? To, okay, it can. Now, what's the right balance? And so I think we're continuing that shift, but it will be incremental and not evolutionary or some quantum step. Some companies will, of course, say, oh, we're moving all remote. Some won't, but may will be a hybrid. I do think we're going to see this hybrid in the following ways. We don't necessarily need everyone in the office five days a week. Interestingly, younger folks have wanted to go back to the office. Older folks have not. And my thinking as to why is older folks, when you think late 30s, 40s, 50s, they're further away in the suburbs. They have family responsibilities and children. And that commute time is tiring. Younger people tend to be closer to their workplaces And they also look to the office for some of their socialization. Now, we're going to see companies that say we're going to be in the office part time, whether that's two days a week, four days a week, week on, week off. I think we're going to start to see more of that. 
people have talked about, well, now we can work from anywhere. That is a bit of a double-edged sword. It's true that, okay, if you want to be on the beach, even if you are in a fully remote company, okay, you can be on the beach halfway around the world. And companies are asking, well, what do we do in terms of salary and level setting? Let's assume they figure that out. You are still missing opportunities because once in a while, you do need to get people together. And if you're in the metro area, maybe it's going to be a two-hour drive. Okay, it's doable. In fact, this is an upside to companies now being a little more remote. Two hours might not be acceptable for a daily drive, but might be acceptable for every other week, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you stay in a friend's bedroom when you're there in the city. So it expands the radius range of companies. Mm-hmm. But when you're halfway around the world, it's harder to come in when we really should all be in a room to figure this out. It also means those networking opportunities that happen outside of work, whether you're internal networking, like the company party and drinks, or external networking, going to events where you're going to meet more people and expand your network to find new jobs, you're not going to be able to do that as easily. So I think you're going to be a little more limited when you're outside the metro areas. The question you asked about skill sets, do skills change? These skills that we talk about in the book and the classes I teach, I think they're pretty universal. Leadership, communication, networking, negotiations. It doesn't change that much in person or remote with one exception, communication. Now that's a very broad area. I give specific communication techniques that apply whether you're local or remote, but we do have to recognize that when we are remote, the nature of our communication changes. We're going to have less spontaneous hallway, water cooler conversations. It's going to feel a little more formalized. You're not gonna overhear as much. And we have to be a little more conscientious into what, when, and how we communicate more so when remote than when we're in the office. But I think that's a relatively small change if we can be focused on it. Yeah, definitely. I don't think they're going to be remote 100% either. I don't think that's... I feel like you you miss the social element. I mean, we saw it obviously in children when they weren't allowed to go to school. Taking the social element completely out, I think will drive people crazy. And I don't think... Like, for example, you said you're on a beach. Do you think that's very productive? I mean, can you work as well if you're on the beach doing your work or will you work better if you're in a quiet space concentrated I feel like you're more productive you will do that in a reduced amount of time different people I think respond differently mm-hmm. you know, how how well do you do sitting 10 feet from your refrigerator some people no problem other people <laughs> say okay I'm snacking every day yeah <laughs> and so it's really just our, our individual habits and preferences mm-hmm. and how we respond to those environments so some people the beach is a distraction others, no, no problem. It's just a more comfortable environment and they're actually more productive. I mean, I'd love to be like that, I think. I mean, my job is definitely not going to be any form of hybrid, so <laughs> I can't I can't have that. But have you adapted any daily habits to boost your productivity, either at home or at work? I'm a little bit of an introvert, so it hasn't been as difficult for me as for other people. Mm-hmm. I do think one thing I've done, and I get asked often about networking while remote, networking during a pandemic. And so this is one thing where I made a conscious decision about reaching out to people. So everyone said, well, we can't network during a pandemic because we can't meet people in person. Well, of course, meeting strangers is one small part of networking. Networking is about relationship building. Mm -hmm. 
And that takes a lot of time and that takes repeated interactions. So I have been conscious about reaching out to people in my network, not just the, how are you doing that we all did week three or four of the pandemic, <laughs> but staying in touch. Some of that has been, there's a Saturday night Zoom group that mm. I've been part of for going on a year, but also specific outreach to people. And one of the silver linings to this is we tend to network locally. We normally say, oh, let's meet for coffee. Let's meet up for drinks after work. You say that to someone where that person's in the same city as you. You don't drive 500 miles to have coffee with someone. But now we can reach out and do that and say, hey, let's have a virtual coffee. That would have sounded strange in 2019, <laughs> but it's normal. So we can use this time, use the nature of our environment to reach out and build those networks globally. And I've been doing some of that. God, Amazing. Great. Yeah. I actually, um, when, when you mentioned younger, you know, more junior employees are keen to go into the office and the contrary is true for senior people. I'm thinking from my perspective, when I begin this training contract in, I mean, I don't start until August, 2022, I've still got a year and a half to go. Um, but yeah, I, I'm probably gonna need to ask questions and <laughs> I would love, you know, that kind of, support from more senior employees whereas in part the opposite is probably true for them they they know what they're doing they want to they want to eliminate their distractions and having a junior employee is probably just adding to that <laughs> excellent point the relationship building the reputation building mm -hmm. the social dynamics all of that is much more important for the more junior employees even things like how do the other employees respond to you when we're all in the same office as a manager, I can see the dynamics. I can see no one likes to talk to this person versus this other person's very helpful, always sitting with other people. I'm going to pick that up, even though it's never formally communicated by Noah you're not going to see that when we're all remote. So I think there are certain advantages that are more important to junior employees, as you point out, being in the office. Yeah, for these junior employees, or for anyone, to be honest, looking to build their soft skills. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the app. One thing I realized whenever you read a book like this, any type of business book, self-help book, you read it and three weeks later, you forget everything, right? 90% of it is just lost as you move on to something else. I wanted to address that and did so by creating this app. So what it does is it takes all the content from the book. If you went through with a highlighter, here's a key point, here's a good quote, it puts into the app and the app is not constrained. This is something we as media producers, fiction, nonfiction, we have to take our content and move it out of this traditional linear box of a book or TV show or even a podcast to make it accessible when, where, and how our listeners want. So the first thing it does is you don't even have to open the app. The app will just pop up each day one of those tips, one of those reminders to help reinforce it. Because if it comes up each day, you're going, oh, right, that was a good point. You're more likely to remember it. You don't even need to open the app to do this. You set it to whatever time you want. All oh, right, good tip, swipe it away. The other way you can use the app is when you're about to go into a networking event, you're not going to carry my book with you and say, oh, wait, let me quickly glance through this chapter before I walk in the room. But you want that content there, right? You want to recall it right before yeah. you walk in the room. The way to do that is through the app. You can open it up 
and go through just the networking tips or just the negotiation tips if you're walking into a negotiation so you can access the content when, where, and how you want. So I was shocked this app didn't exist and had to go build it. I built it as a white label version so other authors can then take it and use it themselves. And I think we're going to see more and more content delivered in this manner. That is fascinating. I mean, I I love a good self-help book and I can completely relate to, you know, you read it, you love it, you remember it for about a week or two. And then I remember loving it. I just don't remember what it actually says or I don't remember what the 10 key points were. Um, And I read one time that I think it was Bill Gates scribbles all over the margins in his books. And since then, my books are ruined. Any nonfiction book I (laughs) scribble down just um, to remember things. But God, that app is so, so helpful. And I actually remember saying to my to my dad years ago, maybe like 10 years ago when I was studying something, I don't even remember if it was in school, university, and I was doing so much highlighting. And I said to him, I said, I wish that the information that my highlighter just picked up, if it was an electronic highlighter, if it would just put it into a Word document so that I wouldn't have to type out my notes. And my dad said, yeah, go for it. And that was the end of that. I never materialized it. So I can tell you went to MIT. That was such a smart move from you. (laughs) That comes from not just being at MIT, but having spent time in digital media, a space Mm -hmm. that I had at certain points, no prior training in, but going into the field saying, I don't know this field, talking to lots of different people. And I happened to learn that from a wonderful presentation. I forget the, the name of the guy who gave it, but he explained how a company took a series of books. They used to just sell this entire set of books and instead turned it into a database. And by taking the content and making it nonlinear, right, that linear set of books, turning it into a database, the perceived value was very different because the way people could use it the actual value was different as well because you can engage with things in a nonlinear way. Mm-hmm. And that changed the dynamic. That changed how people wanted to, to use it and the benefit that they got. And so that's what got me thinking about we need to adjust how we engage with content. And if you think about some of the best content out there, think about for fiction, Star Wars and Harry Potter. It's not simply a book or a movie. They're very linear. It's also costumes, so you can play dress up. It's toys, it's amusement parks, it's online websites, it's interactive games. Mm -hmm. We like this content, but we want to engage with it differently. And so for those of us in the nonfiction world, we also have to, it might not be a game, but it will be ways people can engage in our content in a nonlinear manner. That is so great. We'll include a link to the app in the show notes. What's the name? So in case anybody's looking for it. It's called the Career Toolkit app. It's on both Android and iPhone, completely free. It's also linked from my website. So if you go to the careertoolkitbook.com slash app, or just click app in the menu up top, I can take you right to the app store where you can download it. Okay, perfect. We'll include this all in the show notes too. So anybody listening can just click right in there. God, Mark, it's been fascinating. It's been such a great talk. We keep saying that we need to get our act together and make these more concise episodes. And we just don't want to, like it never happens. I just never want to say goodbye. (laughs) There's too much good content in it. Yeah. Yeah. As long as people listen through, you know, you're delivering value to them. 
Yeah, Definitely. I mean, <laughs> anybody who didn't missed out. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We love hearing from you. Bye.